0: Hey, quick question. What do you get when you combine an appreciation for anime, a passion for animation, a love for the black experience, and crazy dedication? Well, you actually can get a lot of things, but one thing that you can get is an animated series with mystical powers transforming cars with a predominantly black and brown cast that premiered on Netflix. That's right. For those of you who know, I'm talking about the long-awaited Cannon Busters. So, if you know the destination we make in conversation, time is ticking, sun is setting, we got no time for waiting. Might be a showdown, look like it's about to go down, so bust through with the cannon at the hoedown. What up, fam? Welcome to Toon Lord Done Right, a podcast where I take a moment to give you a quick lesson on a film, TV show character, or concept in animation. You can call me Dave the Tutor, and I'll handle your lesson for today. If you like nerdy, blurdy, cartoon, anime, and pop culture stuff, both nostalgic and new, then you're in the right place. And since you're here, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at ToonLawyerDR. Um, you can also support me on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash and become a part of the Toon Laureate Study Group and get a digital certificate for joining up. And while you're here, I want to give a shout out to all of the patrons so far. Uh, who can get early access to episodes, additional content, and access to the Discord community. So thanks to everyone who has been listening to and sharing the podcast. Today, I have a real treat for you guys. I've been wanting to talk about this show since before it was released on Netflix. And so now I'm really excited to talk about Cannon Busters. You know, it's kind of hard for a show with this sort of production history to ever truly live up to its hype. But whether you love it or hate it or think it's just kind of meh, one thing is for certain. People do not talk about this show enough. So with that being said, check your syllabus, pull out your notepads, and let's jump straight into it. Cannon Busters, according to our friends at Fandom.com, is a 12-episode animated series that debuted on Netflix in August of 2019. Despite seeing some delays to its release, the show, directed and written by LaShawn Thomas, with the help of, and forgive me if I butcher some of these names, but Matt Wayne, Natasha Allegri, Anne Toll, and Neela McGregor and it was based on a fantasy comic book series of the same name, also created by Thomas. Featuring a predominantly black and brown cast of characters, Cannon Busters follows the journey of the immortal and alcoholic criminal Philly the Kid, a high-end robot, S-A-M or SAM, which is short for Special Associate Model, and an abandoned robotic junk mechanic named Casey Turnbuckle. Once fate brought them together, they would embark on a journey to find Prince Kelby, who is Sam's best friend and heir to the now-destroyed kingdom of Botica. During their quest, they encounter a colorful cast of characters from mercenaries to bounty hunters to ninjas, grifters, life-absorbing demons, and more. And with Yasuke on Netflix now, I thought it would be a great time to dive into Cannon Busters so now with that proper framework let's hop straight into the toon lord 101. like i said before canon busters is a 12 episode anime series that debuted on netflix in august of 2019 created by LaShawn thomas now a little history on the main man himself thomas has been a producer and director for television animation production with well over a decade of experience in the business he has worked on things like The Boondocks, Season 1 and 2, The Legend of Korra, Book 1, uh, creative producer of Black Dynamite, the animated series, and most recently, he has served as the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the Netflix original TV anime series Yasuki, starring Lakeith Stanfield. Now, with Cannabusters, according to the show's wiki page, at least, uh, we see that the animation studios, uh, State Light and the Yameta Company, are tagged as the, the main animation studios. Now, State Light is known for shows like Helsing Ultimate and one of my favorite anime from my past, Bosquash. Now, if you don't know what Bosquash is, then just imagine Megas XLR plus NBA Street, and you got just this perfect combination of robots and basketballs, and it's Pretty dope. (laughs) As for the Humeta Company, they are known for things like Tokyo Mew 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 and Terraformers Revenge. As for the writers, the main writing credit is given to Mr. Matt S. Wayne, known for some of his own work on the Ultimate Spider-Man TV series, Ben 10 Ultimate Alien, and throwbacks like Danny Phantom, Biker Mice from Mars, just think about that for a second, as well as Static Shot. And speaking of Static Shock, by the way, once you're done here, check out the TLDR archives and you can check out my episode I did on Static Shock in the past. The chief character designer is tagged as Tetsuya Kumagi with a resume that's honestly way too long for me to read right now. But a few notable projects that he's connected to are Skip Beat, Nana, Lupin the Third, Voyage to Danger, and some of the Naruto films as well. Now that we know a little bit about the crew, we're going to dive into a couple of the characters, starting off with the main man himself, Philly the Kid. Now, Philly the Kid is an immortal criminal that is constantly on the run from assassins, bounty hunters, and loan sharks. He's rude, he smells, and is generally an unlikable guy, but he's pretty capable with a gun. Voiced by Ken Michael, Known for his roles as Lamar on Pepper Ann and Darren from As Told by Ginger, he is unique because although he is immortal, it doesn't mean that he can't die, it just means that he comes back after each time his life ends. With each resurrection, a tattoo appears on his body in a random location, noting how many times he has come back from the land of the dead. He is a shoot-first, ask-questions-later kind of guy, and this recklessness and carelessness is what gets him into his greatest deal of trouble. Luckily, he is accompanied by two capable robots, Sam and Casey. Sam is a high-end robot that was separated from her best friend and heir to the throne of Botica, Prince Kelby, voiced by Kamali Minter, known for her work as Sparkle Cadet on Craig of the Creek, as well as Sabrina McStuffins on the Doc McStuffins Show. Sam, which is short for Special Associate Model, seeks to reunite with the prince after their kingdom is invaded and they're separated. While Sam is a fun-loving and innocent robot, she is steadfast and determined, and as the story progresses, we see that she has greater strength than even she knows. Now, as for Casey Turnbuckle, she is an endlessly positive but outdated junk mechanic who loves the idea of flying voiced by Stephanie She, who has an extensive resume, by the way. She is best known for her work as Renee on Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures, Yui from Sword Art Online, and one that I recognize her from, Hinata from the Naruto and Baruto series. Casey was a top maintenance robot, but became obsolete as time passed and is now searching for ways to improve herself. She meets up with Sam just before our story, With Philly the Kid starts, and now is the one who comes up with the idea to find Philly the Kid to help guide them to the place that they think Prince Kelby is. She is loving, caring, determined, and grows attached to our only non sentient member of the crew, Bessie. Now, Bessie is Philly the Kid's red muscle car. It looks like something Colonel Sanders would buy if he was as wealthy as a used car salesman from Texas in the 1980s, but I digress. (laughs) <laughs> While at first Bessie seems like just another car, there's much more to her than meets the eye. In order to function, Bessie requires quarters to be inserted into her dashboard like a Street Fighter 2 arcade machine. By doing this, Bessie transforms to become a literal robotic raging bull. But did you guys catch that? I said that uh, there's much more to her than meets the eye. And then I also said that she transforms because Transformers, they're Motto is more than MCI. You get it? Okay, well, never mind. Now, to, to round out our heroes, we have nine. He is a wandering, masterless swordsman who is older with pinkish, reddish skin and white hair. Voiced by Greg Chun, known for his work as Ike from Super Smash Bros., Lee from the Baki series, Ambassador Lee from Superman Red Sun and what I recognized him from, Muzan Kibutsuji from Demon Slayer. Known for his speed and agility, Nine has used his ninja skills to dismember people so quickly that they don't even notice it. And in my humble opinion, he is the most well-rounded character in the group. The episode on his backstory was far and away my favorite episode. Although he doesn't always stick around the rest of the crew, he shows up when he's needed. Kind of like Kratos in the Tales of Symphonia series. Uh, He shows up, does damage, and then goes about his business. Now, as for the villains, we do have one main villain and his cronies, but there honestly isn't much depth to them. With that in mind, we'll start with the main villain or main antagonist himself, Locke. Locke is a massive man born in the dark realm of the Southlands where they still practice forbidden magic. Voiced by Billy Bob Thompson, known for his work as Jack and Starscream on Transformers Cyberverse, Walla from Lupin the Third the First, try saying that 10 times fast, and various characters of voices on the Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Winx TV series. In an era where magic is almost non-existent, Locke presents himself as a supreme sorcerer that descends upon the powerful yet peaceful kingdom of Botica and by doing so, easily takes down its king, who is known as the most powerful warrior in the kingdom. Beneath him, Locke has a small group of elite warriors called the Fraternity. Their leader and right-hand man of Locke is Dex. She has two robotic hands with sharp claws that fly freely when disconnected from her body. For the other three remaining members of the Fraternity, we have Bridge, Manic, and coin, who you can watch the Canning Busters opening, which by the way, absolutely thumps. You should definitely check it out. Um, but then by watching the opening, you can get a pretty good idea of what their powers and abilities are. With all that being said though, the representation in this show is top notch. In addition to most of the characters being black and brown, there's even a dope character named Hilda with vitiligo. But what struck me the most is that people's appearances was just never a big deal. Uh, There isn't just one token black character that fits all the black stereotypes. And while it's not an apples to apples comparison, I feel like Cannon Busters did better at representation than Pixar's movie Soul. So what are my overall thoughts here? I'll get to that in a moment. But before I do, let me explain my thought process. When I watch an animated show, there are a few criteria that I use to judge to what degree I like it. Um, This isn't a scientific method and it's not something that I always do consciously. However, after years of watching and judging entertainment, this is what I've found that is the most important to me. So we have story, pacing, main characters, support characters, villains, action, comedy slash emotional impact, and finally animation quality. Here are some of the questions that I like to ask myself in order to come to my conclusions. So for the story, is it an interesting premise and do the creators build a believable world? Uh, One where I can easily become immersed in. Uh, For pacing, do I want to come back after each episode? Am I shown what's happening or am I bogged down with exposition did the ending feel right or did it feel rushed or was it too slow as for the main characters do they develop well and entertain me can i root for their cause for the support characters do they develop or push the main cast would i want to know more about them in a spin-off series or a mini arc in the next season as for the villains do they mirror the main characters um are they a good foil do i sympathize with them Uh, my questions on the villain or antagonist will change from show to show because antagonists serve different purposes depending on how the show sets them up as for the action do they bang (laughs) you know what i mean like are the action sequences earned and do they advance the story or is it just you know just only to look pretty um For the comedy slash emotional impact, do I feel the feelings that the creators want me to feel? When characters are sad, do I know why they're sad? Can I empathize empathize with them? Does the show make me laugh? And then finally, for the animation quality, does the style look consistent and does it look fluid for its time? So I I would judge the early years of One Piece differently than I would judge, you know, something that just came out. Now, when I'm looking at the animation, I specifically didn't mention the art style because liking or not liking an art style is, to me, quite subjective. Um, There are some art styles that I just don't like no matter how good the animation is. And that has little to do with the animation quality itself. (laughs) So with all of the exposition out of the way, does Cannon Busters hold up? Let's talk about it. For the story, I do believe that Cannon Busters creates a believable world filled with magic and wonder. And I do believe that the show captures what Thomas set out to accomplish in that Cannon Busters is a fantasy action comedy where the journey is measured not by the miles, but in the friends and the people that you meet along the way. While I wouldn't want to live in this world personally, I can see that there are a great deal of visual motifs so you can recognize the influence of spaghetti westerns, steampunk, video game references, and nods to other anime as well, like of the Kid being a kind of bumbling master akin to uh, Mugen from Samurai Champloo. Now for the pacing, the pacing is where Cannon Buster sees the most dips with me. While I do want to see where the characters end up, I feel that apart from Nine, I didn't learn enough about each character's backstory early on to care about their motivation. This is particularly evident in episode 6 for me, where Philly the Kid's backstory was, I mean, it was Exposition City. Now the concept of surrounding how his backstory was revealed with the villain of that episode, The Unfettered, was dope, so that concept, I love it. However. I would have preferred it to be paced out over time, kind of like the Mandalorian season one. And also as we find out more about Sam and her abilities, it was difficult for me to sense the tension in battles because we as an audience are unaware of her limits, but more on that later. For the main characters, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, For characters like Philly, I mentioned before how his backstory is ill-placed and full of exposition. And it takes away a lot for me, Um, not seeing the seeds of the hatred that drives him sprinkled throughout the story makes things feel a little bit janky. Then you have characters like Nine that have a super compelling backstory that came at the perfect time that makes all of his current actions really make sense. Along with Casey, who doesn't have a huge arc, but whose consistency really holds the story together in many ways for me. Locke's motivations were kind of basic, but I'm hoping that there's a season 2 one day that will help to flesh out some things for me. As for the support characters, you know, as I thought back on this, the supporting cast was kind of awesome. With only a few exceptions, the supporting cast really helped to flesh out the world that Cannon Busters set out to make. I'm not a huge fan of the fraternity, but they play their parts. And there was a bit of bad for me. Um, There's a set of characters in episode two that I wasn't a huge fan of, Uh, not because they were poorly written or poorly designed or anything like that, but because of the accents that they were given. To give a bit of context, these antagonists uh, trapped our heroes to kill them and sell them for parts. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, that sounds kind of weird to say it's fine to sell people for, for parts, but In context it makes sense but the thing that bugs me is that the less intelligent ones were given a thick southern accent now this is a trope often used in film to identify characters as idiotic or barbaric without the need to give them any real backstory the same thing was done in disney's princess and the frog and there's a list that's a mile long that can be gathered with other media that does this the reason that this is an issue specifically for me and just why it irks me so much is because of the experiences that I've had in the past. As a man born and raised in the American South, I have been looked down upon as less intelligent and even coerced into changing the way I speak to become more quote unquote neutral so that my speech pattern can match my level of intelligence. And that's crazy because I kind of feel like Miles Morales now because I can't code switch my accent on when I want to. Watch this. He can do it now. I can't do it on command. He can't do it on command, but it is cool. Now, y'all know I go on tangents all the time, but this is a bit of a cool one. I found this uh, video that I listen to every once in a while that reminds me of how dope my southern accent really is. So listen to this short clip here.
1: But the primary reason, uh, most people don't realize that the American Southern accent is not a sign of ignorance, but actually the fact that, according to linguists, we're the only people left in the United States who generally still sound like our ancestors. Because if you listen to native-born Southern speakers, the average Southern tends to sound more like this, what we call this Moonlight magnolia Draw, because if you speed up that Southern draw, over time it rapidly becomes a British accent. Most people don't realize that people that came here from Europe were largely from the United Kingdom. So when they got here, this was more along the lines of their speaking tones. But that's the first and second generations coming off the boats, not their children. By the third and fourth generations, the kids don't quite sound like mum and dad anymore because they're starting to develop a slight elongation of the way they talk, what's today called the Virginia Tidewater accent. It's not a complete southern drawl because that's a port area. But as you go farther into the southern interior and the years progress, the accent tends to get thicker, deeper, richer by Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia. Heck yeah, you got a full-blown southern drawl.
0: With that being said i wish i could give full credit for the linguists in this clip but the video's description points out to a tumblr link that is broken so i couldn't really trace it back um, if any of y'all know the true source uh, connect with me on twitter at toonlorddr and i'll link the full video in the description on this episode as for the villains i'll just go ahead and say that i'm not a real fan of Locke, and i think that the lack of appropriate power scaling is his biggest foil. It was hard for me to fear him when I couldn't tell exactly how he stacked up. Now, as I mentioned before, his greatest feat to date was taking down the king of Botica in episode one. Unfortunately, the audience is given no concept of how powerful the king is. We are only told how strong he is through dialogue. Now, the fraternity held their own and I knew that Locke was more powerful than them, but But by how much? If he was so powerful, why not go and do things himself? I don't think that he lived up to being the mastermind villain that he was built to be. Now for the action, overall, it looks great and the fight scenes are well planned out. Visually, I enjoyed pretty much every fight scene and I felt as though the fights and action were well placed. For me personally, I got just as much action as I needed from the story. However, as I mentioned before, I did have some issues with the power scaling. And if you're a fan of Dragon Ball like myself, you know how important power scaling is. Now, I'm not saying that Cannon Busters need scouters to track power levels that are over 9,000, but I did have a hard time keeping track of characters' power limits. And I'll give you two examples. First, when Locke took over the kingdom of Botica, he took down the king with ease. It was stated on more than one occasion that the king was a dope warrior, but I never saw any real evidence of that. Like, not even a flashback, so Locke overpowering the king didn't hold much weight for me. Also, when Sam defeated the Unfettered in episode 6, her power seemed kind of random, or at the very least undefined. Each transformation does, does have some sort of laser cannon, but the forms didn't always make sense to me. Keeping track of how the tide of battle swayed can be difficult when watching Sam, particularly versus the unfettered, because there was just no concrete or even implied limits ascribed to either of them. Now for the comedy slash uh, emotional impact, for the most part, this show was funny where it needed to be and it was sad where it needed to be. I also flip-flopped back and forth between the English and Japanese dubs as I enjoyed both of them. Uh, The relationships between Philly, Sam and Casey was great and their dynamic could be great in almost any situation. Now, as far as the overall animation quality, um, with the exception of a few hiccups, the animation was was great for me. There's a few areas that I could nitpick about like in episode three and episode five, but those are minor in comparison to the rest of the show. Now, with all that being said, Cannon Busters is a good show. It gives more wins than losses, particularly in the action area and supporting cast as well as world building. Having an amazing creator like LaShawn Thomas at the helm, we see representation on many levels on full display. Plus I've said it before and I'll say it again, that theme song is dope. However, There are a few misses. The main character's motivations don't come across or drive the story. The lackluster villain doesn't live up to its potential. So as I look over the material put in front of me on a scale of skip it, try it, watch it, or binge it, I would give Cannon Busters the rating of watch it for the culture. Now before I let you go, I want to take you to a part of the show that I like to call the black light. Here I scour the farthest darkest corners of the internet to showcase a piece of work or an artist that has piqued my interest. On Instagram, I follow Dr. Norton Therapy. This isn't art in the traditional sense. You know, I usually will give you a creator or some sort of illustrator or something like that. But I mean, I was open about some of my past traumas and having a safe place to talk is is key. So, If you follow him at Dr. Norton Therapy uh, on Instagram, he posts inspirational messages and quotes that promote self-care. So I think that keeping the conversation open about mental health, particularly within the black community, is important. So I just wanted to uh, push his Instagram page your way. So I highly recommend that you check him out on Instagram just after you finish liking and subscribing to this podcast, particularly on iTunes, where you can leave me an awesome review. This has been Lore Done Right. And don't forget to like, share, review, comment, and subscribe. I can't wait to see what new countries and people we can reach out to. Uh, You can dialogue with me and even make suggestions on future episodes by following me on Instagram and Twitter at TuneLoreDR. So until the next time I can give you the TLDR on a film, TV show character, or concept in animation, it's been real.